You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Art of History podcast. I'm Amanda. I'm your host, alongside my trusty art history degree that gets no use other than this at this point. It feels really good to be back recording. This is going to be a really fun episode, um, probably a very long episode. So I suggest you settle in, get yourself a nice hot beverage, and just kind of enjoy. I think one thing is true of people who listen to art history podcasts in general, people who follow me, we all love a good bit of Tudor history. I think it's also safe to say that we all love a good ghost story, a little spooky tale now and then. So in this episode, we have a little bit of both. Before we get into it, this is your cursory reminder to rate, review, subscribe, tell your mom or a friend about the show. I'm sure they would love to listen along and then you can like talk about it and stuff. Oh, and one housekeeping note, uh, a listener brought to my attention that there was uh, an instance where some Republican politicians up for election were running ads on my show. I do apologize for that. Um, If, you know, politics is something you wanted to stay away from while listening to your podcast, uh, I have updated my ad settings. Uh, My ads do get automatically inserted right now, but uh, you should not be hearing any more of that on this show. Election day proper uh, should be over by the time this episode goes up, but uh, I'm sure there's some shenanigans still happening. I, for one, am glad that the ads are going to stop, but, you know, other than that, we still live in hell. Anyway, (laughs) if you are new to the show, the premise here is pretty simple. Each episode, I select a work of art or two or three or four, I think, today that can tell us a story from the past. I will let you know what those are going to be as we go through the episode, although I have already posted them over on the Instagram at Art of History Podcast. Uh, While you're there, go ahead and give the show a follow. It will only save you time for future episodes. And I will guide us through a look at each of these pieces together as we explore the bigger picture and kind of the myths and legends behind them today. We are going to be placing ourselves in the middle of Hampton Court Palace for today's episode and talking about some of the ghosts who are said to haunt its stately halls. If you've heard about Hampton Court Palace or have visited, you might know that it is often the darker side of this palace's history that gets the most airtime, specifically when it relates to its most famous resident, King Henry VIII. And the six of his wives, who I believe all lived there at one time or another. So today we're going to kind of weave our way in and out of the timeline of Henry's um, life at Hampton Court Palace and pop in on some characters in his story who are said to still be uh, lingering in the halls of Hampton Court. Hampton Court Palace was built by Cardinal Thomas Wolsey in 1514. 
1528, as Cardinal Wolsey was kind of falling out of favor with Henry in, I would say, a last-ditch effort to win back some of the king's favor, he presented the palace to him as a gift, a token of his admiration. Henry VIII really loved Hampton Court Palace because Wolsey had put a lot of money and effort into making it fit for a king, and, well, eventually it fell into a king's hands. Henry lived there on and off over the years, but other royals did use Hampton Court after he was gone. Significant renovations were made over the years, um, especially in the reign of William and Mary. And then George I and George II also lived in the palace. George II was the last monarch to use Hampton Court as a royal residence. Beginning then in 1737, Hampton Court became a site for grace and favor residents, according to Historic Royal Palaces, who manages the site today. These grace and favor residences, apartments mainly, were and still are, I believe, given to aristocrats and their families who were in need of free accommodation in return for their service to the monarch. Uh, people were granted apartments at Hampton Court up until the 1960s, and I believe that a few elderly residents still live there today. Queen Victoria opened the property to visitors in 1838, paving the way for what Hampton Court Palace is today, a tourist destination where visitors from all over the world come to marvel at its architecture, its art collection, and its eerie past. In 1897, the writer William Holden Hunt described the appeal of Hampton Court, saying it was, quote, a world invisible or half-known, where imagination and tradition vie in bringing forth strange noises and mysterious presences. Hunt was writing about 50 years after the ghost stories associated with Hampton Court Palace had really, really taken off. In 1871, two male skeletons in shallow graves were unearthed under the cloister in Fountain Court during a routine investigation. Their discovery brought huge relief to one palace resident in a grace and favor apartment. This was an elderly woman who had complained of constant banging and knocking on her walls, but nobody had believed her. All of those disturbances stopped when the men men's remains were properly interred. <laughs> I love this quote from her. She said, That stupid board of works has at last found the two wretched men who have been haunting me for years. It's been suggested that these two anonymous men were victims of the English Civil Wars from 1642 to 1651. Perhaps they were killed by the roundheads and hastily buried in unmarked graves, which were then concealed during Christopher Wren's remodel of the palace in 1689, turning it into a Baroque palace rather than a Tudor one. In May 2000, the noted psychologist Richard Wiseman conducted an experiment at Hampton Court to investigate whether ghosts really were all in the mind, if people were just imagining, or if there was really something to these sightings that have occurred throughout the centuries, which, don't worry, we'll get into. Wiseman asked volunteers to describe themselves as either believers or non-believers in the paranormal, and he asked people in both groups to record any unusual experiences as they wandered around Hampton Court. As you might expect, the believers reported more spooky sensations, but interestingly, many participants recorded more unusual incidences in the same places, the haunted gallery and the Georgian rooms of the palace. This happened whether or not they knew about the legends associated with Hampton Court before going into the experiment. To many people, this suggests that there is, at the very least, 
something going on with the energy at Hampton Court Palace. Not least of all, these stories that are associated with at least two of Henry VIII's wives who are said to haunt it. His beloved third wife, Jane Seymour, who died after giving birth in 1537, and his fifth wife, Catherine Howard, whom he had executed for adultery in 1542. So we will start with Jane Seymour. I do have a couple portraits of her over on the Instagram. Jane was born to the prominent Seymour family at their now famous home, Wolf Hall in Wiltshire, probably in 1509. She was the sister of Edward Seymour, later Duke of Somerset, and Thomas Seymour, the Lord High Admiral. We have spoken about both of them before in our early years of Elizabeth I episode, if you would like to refer back. Jane Seymour had initially come to Henry VIII's court as a lady-in-waiting to his first wife, Queen Catherine of Aragon. She then served as a lady-in-waiting to Queen Anne Boleyn after Catherine of Aragon fell from favor. This is a trend that we will see with a few of Henry's wives. It's, it's true. We don't really know how Jane came to the attention of Henry, but within 24 hours of the execution of his second wife, Anne Boleyn, in May 1536, Jane and Henry were formally betrothed. On May 30th, 1536, less than two weeks after Anne's death, Henry VIII married Jane Seymour in the Queen's closet at Whitehall Palace. She was publicly declared queen on June the 4th, 1536. By October 1537, Jane had retired to Hampton Court Palace to await her lying in. She was pregnant, and at this time in the Tudor era, you would go lay in a dark room, basically, until you were ready to give birth. On October 12, 1537, after a long and hard labor, Jane gave birth to a baby boy. This was Henry VIII's long-awaited son. He was baptized Edward on the 15th of October, 1537. Fittingly, this was the eve of St. Edward's Day. Both his half-sisters, Princess Mary and Princess Elizabeth, participated in the ceremony, with Mary being chosen as the baby's godmother. Jane was not present at the baptism, as was the custom, but she would have been able to watch the procession from her rooms in Hampton Court Palace. It was there that her condition was rapidly deteriorating. A distraught King Henry did not leave his wife's side the entire night when he learned that she was ill. Despite the best efforts of Henry's doctors, they were unable to save her, and in the early hours of October 24th, only 12 days after the birth of Prince Edward, Jane passed away. I think it's pretty obvious that she died from post-birth complications given the state of maternal medicine in the 16th century. It has been rumored that Jane died from complications from a cesarean section, but this is pretty unlikely as she survived the birth itself and lingered for almost two weeks afterwards. There's also no record of her experiencing anything traumatic or having excessive bleeding. It is generally accepted today that Jane died of puerperal fever, a bacterial infection also known as childbed fever. The same fate awaited Henry's sixth wife and Jane's sister-in-law, Catherine Parr, who married Thomas Seymour after Henry VIII's death and died giving birth to their daughter. Henry, while still probably delighted that he had finally gotten his male heir, was devastated at the loss of his so-called perfect queen. Jane Seymour was the only one of Henry's six wives to lie beside him in the royal vault at St. George's Chapel in Windsor, where he would be buried when he died. 
they lie together in a vault just beneath the center aisle. You can actually see their black um, gravestone slab in recent ceremonies held there in modern times, such as the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and Queen Elizabeth's uh, interment service during her funeral procession or proceedings. The slab was placed there 300 years later on the orders of King William IV, and it also tells us that sharing their royal vault is kind of an eclectic group that includes King Charles I and an infant daughter of Queen Anne. Jane then would have been the first person to be laid in this vault, and at the funeral, the king's eldest daughter Mary was her principal mourner. There was a procession of 29 additional mourners following behind her, probably representing one for every year of Jane's life. She was the only one of Henry's wives to receive a queen's funeral. After her death, Henry held Jane Seymour's memory as pretty much sacrosanct. He wore black for three months afterwards and openly referred to her as his favorite and dearest wife, gone just too soon from his life. This isn't exactly surprising, even though we know Henry could have been callous and cold on occasion. Jane gave the king the son he so desperately desired for many, many years, and then she promptly died, perhaps before she could do anything to displease him or be forced to watch his affections turn elsewhere. Before ghost stories of Jane Seymour began to circulate with the public, her memory was already haunting Henry, and I'm sure this was not made easier by the fact that there were quite a few portraits of her around um, England and his various royal residences. The National Portrait Gallery in London has an unfinished portrait of her, which I find kind of fascinating. There's something a little haunting about an unfinished portrait of a queen who died very suddenly and very tragically. This is over on the Instagram in the post for today's episode. I have done things a little bit differently this episode. Um, for the post itself, all of the image details are in the caption, not in the images themselves, so you'll need to like expand the caption to get all of the details. While we don't know the identity of the artist behind this portrait, we are almost sure that it is Jane Seymour due to the uncanny resemblance that this painting has to two other very famous portraits that we know are of her. These were executed by the German artist Hans Holbein the Younger. These include a portrait drawing of Jane in the Royal Collection Trust, which was likely a preparatory study for a number of finished portraits of her. Probably the finest and most famous of these portraits is in the Kunsthistorics Museum in Vienna. I have that one on the Instagram as well, so you can kind of see the final product. In that painting and in the unfinished one, she is depicted at half length and has her hands clasped in front of her quite demurely, looking off into the distance. She's not really engaging the viewer directly. The Vienna portrait, which was based on a sitting from life with Jane Seymour, has her in a richly detailed gown with cloth of gold oversleeves, cloth of silver undersleeves, and just she's kind of just encrusted with jewels. Her headdress in both portraits is an English gable hood. This would have been quite the um, stark contrast to the fashionable French hoods brought in by her predecessor, Queen Anne Boleyn. But while Jane was probably promoting a bit more austerity in her image than what Anne was fond of, she still would have been adorned with jewels and lavish uh, fabrics, patterns, all that sort of thing. So we can kind of tell right away that this copy is completely unfinished. 
Everything to do with her as a person in this portrait seems to be finished. Her skin tone is built up, her hands are extremely detailed, but for the rest of the painting, really all we're seeing is the underdrawing and the base layer that has been applied to like her sleeves, her gown, and her headdress. We can tell from the finished portions of the painting that this was executed at a very highly skilled level, probably by someone who was working in Hans Holbein the Younger's studio. Catherine Bolland, the senior curator for research and 16th century collections at the National Portrait Gallery, has said that the number of portrait painters working in England at this time was small. It was a very restricted pool. And the fact that this version is so closely related to the Vienna painting in terms of its proportions suggests that the painter had access to a source image that they could then create this painting from. There are a number of surviving portraits that seemed to come from this studio around Holbein, who had become court painter to Henry VIII in 1536. This painting of Jane Seymour would have been one of the first he completed in the service of the king. It would not have been unusual for copies of this portrait of Jane to be made and sent out maybe to supporters of her, friends of the king, that sort of thing. That's what makes it so interesting that it really just seems like somebody stopped painting it and never went back. Where you have her, what are supposed to be her lavish jewels, you just have these kind of rust-colored blobs standing in. This would have likely been a very lavish and expensive commission to make this copy, and it probably would have been destined for the home of somebody of very high status, but it simply seems to be unfinished. It's possible that the painting was left unfinished because of Jane's sudden and tragic death. But this doesn't seem to tell us the whole story because her brother, Edward Seymour, did commission a new portrait of her and paid Holbein for it after she had passed away. Charlotte Bolland says, after all, she was still the future king's mother and a very much a figure to be commemorated. Perhaps her family wanted to champion their position at court through their connection to Jane, particularly dur during her son, who would become Edward VI's reign. Charlotte Bolland goes on, it could have been the downfall of the Seymour family during Edward's reign that the artist realized their patron was never going to pay their bills. So therefore, he stops. And then of course, the third option, which is perhaps the most dramatic, is that Holbein's own death, according to the documentary record, seems to have been very sudden and possibly from the plague. He died a few years after Jane in 1543. Whatever the reason that the painter just kind of up and left this portrait of Jane Seymour, there's something, I don't know, hauntingly poetic in that. Just like with her own life, there was a lot of, I would say, unfinished business there. She was taken way too soon from her life as a wife and a mother and a queen. And just like the painter of this portrait up and walked away, she seems to have been just taken from that. Now, some people have taken this idea of unfinished business a little farther with Jane because her spirit is one of those said to still walk the halls of Hampton Court Palace. A pale figure is reported to appear in the early hours of Edward's birthday. This would be on October 24th every year. Jane can be seen, apparently, walking up and down the silver stick stairs, which once led up to the room in which she gave birth and died 12 days later. The figure of Jane will also wander out to the clock court down below carrying a lit taper candle, sometimes singing or humming lullabies to her baby prince. The gallery at the top of the silver stick stairs and the exact apartments where Jane gave birth to Edward and where she later died are not open to the public, 
I do have a photo of the staircase over on the Instagram for you to check out. Now, if you believe that Jane's spirit might still be walking the hallways of Hampton Court Palace, there are a few schools of thought regarding why. The first is that the space in which she is now said to roam recorded a lot of emotion in a very short amount of time, recorded the pain of childbirth, then the joy of knowing that the king had been given a son, and then the sadness and despair after the death of the queen. It's possible that those emotions were imprinted on the space, and every so often the space plays those emotions back. I am not a paranormal expert by any means, but it's my understanding that in this case, the spirit, so-called, would not actually be Jane herself, but rather kind of a shade or a memory of her. But there is another more chilling explanation for why she is seen each year, which has been repeated for, I would say, almost 150 years at this point. This is the idea that Jane Seymour herself is still an earthbound spirit. And the reasoning is a little fanciful, I will say. Some claim that Jane's heavy conscience and guilt about the manner in which she supplanted her queen, Anne Boleyn, cause her to remain on Earth until she gains forgiveness from Anne. This story likely comes to us from a spiritualist book, uh, an account written by one Mrs. Russell Davies probably a pseudonym, which appears, um, I found this one in Borderland, a quarterly review and index, volume four, edited by, edited by William Thomas Stead in 1897. Mrs. Davies claims to have held two seances with royal ghosts of Hampton Court. The first was with Catherine Howard. We'll touch on that one a little bit later in the episode. Both of these read more like revisionist histories than anything else when it comes to these two dead queens. It's like the writer is trying to correct the historical record and the reader's understanding of their lives by painting this account that they're going to give as a conversation with the queen's ghost. But I think it is also fascinating where this account of Jane Seymour connects almost directly to the ideas that persist today about the so-called spirit sightings associated with her. I will read you a few excerpts from this account. Take these with a grain of salt. The Victorians loved a good ghost story, and you should not believe everything that they put in writing, even if it is, you know, written in an old book. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. This account begins with Mrs. Davies not being able to sleep, and she decides that what she needs to do is invoke the spirit of Jane Seymour. She does this, and the spirit appears in her room with a rush of icy cold air. The queen tells her, I am here because you called me, not of my own will, but against it. The spirits who brought me here are those in whose power I am and must continue to be until such time as by my own efforts, I shall have repaired the wrongs I did to them while on earth. Oh, how long will this be? When will it end? Mrs. Davies then asks her, are you the queen, Jane Seymour? The ghost answers with remarkable self-reflection, really. I am Jane Seymour, but no queen. I was the wife of Henry, King of England, but queen in name only. He had only one, and she was Queen Catherine. Anne was no more queen than I was, and none knew this better than herself. It was this fact which influenced me so far that when Henry turned his attention to me, I saw no reason to reject his advances. That he was unprincipled, licentious, and cruel was well known to me and to all who ever came in contact with him, but I never dreamed that he would execute Anne in order to make me his wife, at least not until it was too late and I was committed to him. 
it's it's really compelling stuff. Um, I think what's happening here is a kind of a Victorian idea of imposing morality onto the past and trying to puzzle out how a woman who has been handed down to us through history as, you know, the shining example of Henry's most beloved wife, who he said, you know, was a morally just upright woman, the best that he had, blah, blah, blah. The Victorians trying to reconcile that with, you know, the fact that mm, this is also a man who executed a wife to be with this woman. So that's that's what I think is going on here. They're kind of giving her a chance to redeem herself in not her afterlife, but before she moves on to her afterlife. It's kind of fascinating. That's just my opinion. I have done uh, very minimal research into this phenomenon of these accounts, but um, that's my that's my guess here particularly because of this next passage here. The ghost of Jane Seymour goes on, quote, Neither Anne nor I had any real religion in us. That was untrue. Anne was pretty religious. No matter what either of us may have professed, who was there to care for our morals, our health, or anything else which is or should be sacred to youth? Our parents had done all they considered could be required of them. We were at the court of a great queen, and we were being educated for court life. We found all we were sent there to find. I had no compunction then about Anne's happiness. I hated her and her family. Her father, a treacherous and scheming old man, was the first to find out Henry's attentions to me. He it was who prompted Anne to spy upon us. And the account goes on. Um, Mrs. Davies tries to get some more information about um, Anne finding out about Jane's relationship with Henry from this ghost. They go on back and forth for a little while. It's interesting, there's a little bit of redemption for Anne's character in here as well. Um, I'll pick back up here. Quote, this is Jane speaking. Quote, Anne was as faithful a wife to Henry as the purest wife in the world could be. I saw her day by day, worn with grief, anxiety, and illness. And if I ever prayed at all in those evil days of mine, I prayed that both she and her child might die. And at last, the day came when a dead son was born to her. I saw Henry's fury and disappointment. If Anne had not been well watched and protected by her own people, he would have poisoned her. He was capable of any villainy. He recovered, and I watched the net closing round her, and one day Henry told me she was to die, and that her death would be my triumph. We pretended to be cool to each other. I went frequently from court, but my family was busily preparing for my marriage. At last, the fatal day came round. I was at my father's house. Wolf Hall, a good name, was it not? Even my callous heart was touched, and in imagination, I saw the tragedy being enacted. So there she's talking about, allegedly, <laughs> the day that Anne was beheaded, and then 24 hours later, she and Henry were officially betrothed. Um, Mrs. Davies, at this point, writes, I seemed to feel the sickening horror of the whole crime. I can hardly describe my feeling. I felt as though every drop of blood in my body rushed into my head and face and would burst out at my eyes and ears. Then I broke out into a violent perspiration, grew as cold as ice, and sat and shivered. Jane Seymour sat by my side with her hands held over her face in an attitude of abject fear. I asked myself whether it was wrong to recall this woman to earth. Presently she uncovered her face and I heard her voice again. Were you right in calling me, you ask? How am I to answer? I certainly did not come here of my own will or by my own desire. I do not know you, but I was compelled to come. I heard a voice, loud, distant, and imperative, and I was forced by an unknown power to obey. You are a woman and can judge from a woman's standpoint. Is my punishment what it should be? Is it too heavy or too light? Will Anne Boleyn's bloodstain ever be washed off my unhappy soul? 
Not Anne's blood alone, but those that of those martyred gentlemen who shared her cruel fate is there to haunt me. There is a sea of blood through which it is my fate to wade before I can once more clasp to my bosom the child for whose life I gave my own. It is in the undying hope of regaining my son that I wander perpetually through Hampton Court in the spirit. He was born there and is still there, but between us there rolls a sea of blood. My child, my child, can I ever atone? So there you have it kind of uh, spelled out for at least the Victorians um, in order to redeem her soul. Jane Seymour's ghost was bound to the halls of Hampton Court until she was able to atone for the wrongs she did against Anne Boleyn and all of the men who were sent to the tower and were beheaded um, after being accused of committing adultery with her. Could this possibly be the case, or is this an example of the Victorians trying to retroactively apply some poetic justice to Jane Seymour's story? Maybe trying to reconcile some of what we think we know about her with the actual facts of how she became Henry's wife. I don't know, the world may never know. Now, I mentioned that Mrs. Russell Davies also had an account of a seance where she communed with the spirit of Catherine Howard. She is probably the most famous ghost uh, said to walk the halls of Hampton Court Palace. The story has been almost perfected over the years. Many of you may know it. I first read this uh, ghost story and I'm going to read it to you here. This is in the Royal Diaries book that focuses on Elizabeth I. I don't know if you read these as a child. Um, We've recently been reminiscing about them over on my main Instagram in in particular because I just completed my collection of all 20 of these. Basically these were books for young adults, specifically (laughs) girls I think, uh, in which they imagined that young princesses and future rulers from around the world were keeping diaries and writing from their perspective. It's, you know, some of it's a little revisionist, we're filling in the gaps, but for for most the most part, the broad swaths of history here are pretty accurate. Aside from, you know, the ghost story I'm about to read you. Although, who knows? So this is September 1st, 1544 in our little fictional journal world. <clears throat> Elizabeth writes, All this rain and prayer is not only boring, but depressing. My thoughts turn dark. Shadows begin to gather like night birds in my mind. They glide across my half dreams in the perpetual darkness of these dreary days. And when I get like this, I begin to hear the crying again, the crying of Catherine Howard. You see, Catherine is now a ghost. She never rests, but haunts the long gallery of Hampton Court. She often comes with the darkness of my mind, but sooner or later, others hear her as well. And then September 2nd, Robin heard her too last night. So now we must do what is required to put her poor spirit at ease so the rest of us can be in peace. The adults pretend they never see her or hear her, but I know they do. In particular, I know my father does. He is the most plagued of all by her ghost. So now I must tell you the dreadful story of Catherine Howard. It was said that she had been with other men before she had married my father and since, including Thomas Culpepper, a gentleman of my father's privy chamber. It is the crime of highest treason to be unfaithful to the king. There was no choice except to arrest her. But father was still slow in the doing of it and proceeded with great care as he had loved Catherine. For a while, there was some talk of sending her away to a convent. Many thought my father would never execute her. She was under house arrest first at Hampton Court and just before she was to be taken to the tower, she broke loose from the guard and ran screaming down the long gallery that leads to the royal chapel. She had thought my father was in the chapel praying. Her screams for mercy could be heard throughout the west wing of Hampton Court, but father was not there. He was out hunting. 
Robin and I were there, however. We saw her. It was a sight I shall never forget. Her eyes slid back in her skull until only the whites were visible. She knocked over a statue which shattered on the marble floor, but it did not break her speed. Her hair streamed out behind her and she frothed. Yes, she actually frothed at the mouth. It was the most ghastly sight I have ever seen. Robin and I clutched each other and it was then that I whispered in Robin's ear that I should never marry. So, as I said, this passage is completely fictional. It's written in a book of historical fiction, but it does take inspiration from tales that have been spread across the centuries of the ghost of Catherine Howard doing exactly what Elizabeth paints her as doing in that excerpt. She is doomed to repeat for eternity that episode that I just read to you, running down the long gallery, now known, for some odd reason, as the Haunted Gallery at Hampton Court Palace for eternity. I'm going to take a little break, and when we come back, we will dive into the true story behind this haunting tale of Hampton Court Palace's most famous resident ghost. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. All right, and we are back. Hopefully you got a chance to top up your beverage, get a nice cozy blanket, um... Call a friend if you were too scared by that first half of the episode. You know, whatever you got to (laughs) do. We are diving back in to meet our second ghost of this episode, Catherine Howard. So Catherine, I'm spelling this with a K um, because that is how she spelled her name in one of the examples of letters that we have from her. Um, Sometimes it's with an I-N-E at the end. Sometimes it's a Y-N at the end. But I like a K for Catherine Howard, where, whereas I also like a C for Catherine of Aragon, just to keep all these Catherines straight. <laughs> she was the daughter of Lord Edmund Howard, a younger brother of Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk. This makes her a first cousin to Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII's ill-fated second queen, who we've referenced a few times already this episode. We don't know the exact date of her birth, but Catherine was thought to have been born sometime between 1518 and 1524. She was brought up in the household of her older relative, the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk. As part of the Duchess's household, she would have spent most of her time at Lambeth and Horsham. Historical novelist Philippa Gregory, uh, who does 
some research for her books and decides to change the details <clears throat> for the final copy. <clears throat> anyway, she describes the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk's household as, quote, being full of her young wards and companions and says they, quote, received little supervision. And I think this broadly is true. Catherine and her friends were allowed to entertain male admirers in their large shared dormitory. Dormitory? I don't know. In their dorm, <laughs> essentially. Catherine herself was young, merry, and vivacious, and was, quote, not scholarly or devout. The household has been likened by historian David Starkey to a, quote, slackly run boarding school. Catherine Howard first came to court as a lady-in-waiting to Henry VIII's fourth wife, and the person who has the best songs in the musical six, Anne of Cleves. At court, her reputation for being beautiful and full of life continued, and she was, you know, very much younger and probably more appealing to Henry VIII's uh, aesthetic sensibilities than her mistress. Henry had only entertained the idea of a marriage with Anne of Cleves because he, quote, desperately needed new allies, according to historian Tracy Borman. She goes on, an alliance with Cleves would provide a major boost to the Reformation in England, and it was for this reason that Henry's chief minister, Thomas Cromwell, championed it so enthusiastically. Anne came from a German Protestant area in Europe, and even though Henry was not uh, immediately attracted to her, which was a big problem for him, he did go through with the marriage, although it would be annulled just a few months later. After the speedy collapse of his unsuccessful match with Anne, Henry was determined to choose his next bride for himself. His attention was soon drawn to the very young Catherine Howard. She was pushed by her family, most likely, into the king's attention, who decided she was exactly the sort of wife he had been looking for, namely young, beautiful, and, most importantly, potentially able to give him new heirs. Her uncle, Thomas, the Duke of Norfolk, probably encouraged the girl to respond to the king's attentions, seeing this as a way to increase his own influence over the monarch, which, understandably, had waned after his niece Anne Boleyn had been executed. The Duke also took advantage of the debacle of Anne of Cleves and, and that whole thing um, as a chance to discredit his enemy, Thomas Cromwell. In fact, Cromwell himself was executed shortly after the marriage was nullified. So Catherine has been set up for success to become the next queen, but nonetheless, she and her new husband-to-be were pretty poorly matched, mostly because of the 30 or so year age gap between them. Henry was 49, and his bride was probably around 18 or 19 years old. By the time that the young and vivacious Catherine had met Henry, he was middle-aged, plagued by injuries to his legs, and had developed a terrible habit for turning on his wives when they did not meet his lofty expectations. In hindsight, it might be safe to say that she never stood a chance. Nevertheless, Henry and Catherine were married on the 28th of July, 1540, less than three weeks after his marriage to Anna Cleves was officially annulled. Henry did expect high moral standards from all of his wives, um, quite unlike his own, especially in his youth, and it was rumored that Catherine had an ambiguous sexual past coming into the wedding with Henry. This would not come to his attention until much later, however. For all that can be said about this being a terrible match, Catherine did manage to lift the king's spirits, for a short time anyway. Henry had gained a lot of weight and was dealing with this ulcer on his leg that was going to plague him at this point until his death. The vivacious young Catherine brought back some of Henry's zest for life, as it were. 
He lavished gifts on his young wife and called her his rose without a thorn and the very jewel of womanhood. Less than a year into Catherine's marriage with Henry, however, rumors of infidelity began. Now, it had already been proven with Anne Boleyn that if factions at court wanted the queen out because she no longer served their best interests, infidelity was a good accusation to hurl at her in order to meet, you know, the ends that you wanted. But even so, there is evidence that Catherine participated at least in some of the behaviors that she was um, accused of. It's kind of hard to blame her (laughs) once you get to court, you know, you're this young, beautiful queen. Why wouldn't you want to seek the company of handsome young men closer to your own age when your husband is 50 and his legs are constantly oozing pus? You know, I, I don't blame her for that. But to do so, even if only in the game of like courtly love, which is this elaborate charade where the participants know that they're not actually flirting with each other. It's just, it's just for fun. It's just for show. Even this was dangerous for a queen, especially one who came from a powerful family with many enemies. Secret investigations were launched into Catherine's behavior, and by November 1541, there was enough evidence against the queen that Archbishop Cranmer informed the king of her misconduct. This happened via letter. Apparently no one was um, up to the job of telling Henry face to face, That was left for him in his chapel on All Souls Day, so about November 1st he would have received this letter. Just the day before, at the All Saints Mass, the Bishop of Lincoln had given thanks with the king for the good life he led and hoped to lead with Catherine, but now he was discovering that there were allegations about her purity when she had married him. In this letter, he learned that his new queen was accused of, quote, dissolute living before her marriage with a man named Francis Derham. The king ordered Archbishop Cranmer to thoroughly investigate the claims and confined Catherine to her apartments with only her lady-in-waiting, Lady Rochford, to attend her. Now, Lady Rochford, if you've ever watched the Tudors, you might know, she was once married to Anne Boleyn's brother George. George had been executed along some other men who were accused of committing adultery with Anne, but Lady Rochford stayed on at court and served in the households of, I believe, Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleves, and finally now Catherine Howard. Perhaps in the episode I'm about to relate to you, it was Lady Rochford who had told Queen Catherine of Henry's receiving that letter of the allegations against her. Because as the story goes, that Catherine, in her own rooms, heard what was happening in the Chapel Royal shortly after the news had been delivered to the king. This was a charge for which her predecessor, Anne Boleyn, had been executed, and I can hardly blame her, therefore, for breaking free from her rooms and running along the gallery to the chapel in order to plead with her husband for her life. She is said to have run screaming down this long gallery, but just as she reached the doors, screaming for mercy, she was seized by guards who took her back to her rooms. A few days later, the king left Hampton Court Palace, never to see her again. From there, Catherine was taken to Sion Abbey, Lady Rochford went with her, and there, under house arrest, the allegations against Catherine were investigated. Let's talk about those allegations. Enough evidence was gathered that the queen had been promiscuous before her marriage to present that letter to the king, but they actually were only going off of that when she was arrested. It was through subsequent interrogations that it came out that she had been conducting an affair with a courtier named Thomas Culpepper. But to start at the beginning, 
When Catherine was around 13 years old, she is said to have had a relationship with her music teacher, Henry Manock, or maybe Manox, it's spelled different ways throughout history. He had been employed to teach her the virginals, a type of keyboard instrument. I swear, this almost writes itself. It's no wonder we're obsessed with this time period. <laughs> when later questioned about this in 1541, during these uh, treason investigations, both denied ever having had intercourse, so no sex. I should mention too, I said treason investigations. The reason that adultery for queens was a reason to behead them is because it was considered treason to transgress against their husbands in this way when he was the king. But having a flirtation with a man before you even ever met the king, that might have been able to slide. But Catherine had a longer sexual relationship with a young noble named Francis Derham, who was also a secretary in her grandmother's household. This happened between 1537 and 1539. The pair, quote, almost certainly became lovers, addressing each other as husband and wife. Francis even entrusted her with his money while he was traveling, says Philippa Gregory, so take that with a grain of salt. But the jealous Henry Manock is said to have informed the Dowager Duchess of this relationship, who quickly put an end to it. Now, many historians to... Really? Sorry, it's time to play my favorite game, try and record a clip in between my neighbor stopping and starting his weed whacker. Okay, most historians today do kind of subscribe to this idea that Catherine Howard's relationships with Henry Manock and Francis Derham were non-consensual. Among them is historian Josephine Wilkinson, who says, quote, While living with the Duchess of Norfolk, Catherine was sexually exploited by two men of the household. Both men took advantage of their position of authority, and Catherine had no means of defending herself. Historian Lucy Worsley echoes this sentiment. Writing in the Telegraph, she highlighted the queasy fact that the girl at the center of this was quite possibly still in her early teens. It's all very well to describe Catherine's easy charm and her, quote, abundant store of good nature, but it is questionable to do so about a girl who, from the age of 11 or 12 onwards, had older men coming into her bedroom, especially when Manock was placed in a position of responsibility towards Catherine as her music teacher. So this all taken in Henry VIII's mind could have equaled treason, maybe on the men's part for corrupting the body of his future queen. I don't know. I'm trying to think like a Tudor man here. But the most damning evidence of Catherine's promiscuity was the claim that she had been involved in a secret relationship with a man named Thomas Culpepper, a gentleman of the king's privy chamber, after her marriage. The only surviving letter we have from Catherine is addressed to Thomas. I have it over on the Instagram if you would like to see it. I have highlighted probably the most easy to read part um, of it for you. At another point in the letter, she writes, It makes my heart die to think I cannot always be in your company. Catherine and Thomas met on a handful of occasions beginning in April 1541, and then during the court's annual progress um, to the north of England between June and October of that same year. It is typically assumed that they were involved in a sexual relationship, or that they were at the very least in love and intended to consummate their relationship, but actually we don't know a whole lot for sure about the nature of their meetings and their conversations during that spring and summer. Almost no historical evidence supports the assumption that this was a passionate physical love affair. On a few of the occasions that she met Thomas Culpepper, Catherine insisted that Lady Rochford, um, who actually organized the meetings, stay to chaperone them as well. 
Eventually, she did instruct her to inform Culpepper that she would not meet with him again. Some have suggested an alternative interpretation of their relationship, um, which places it kind of in a larger political context, where Culpepper may have learned of Catherine's premarital sexual relations, um, and these unfitting rumors were something that he used to essentially blackmail her into giving him a higher position at court. Those rumors of Catherine being generally promiscuous had circulated uh, beginning in 1540, and then when Francis Derham arrived to court in the summer of 1541 um, and somehow persuaded the queen to give him a position in her own household, he began to openly boast of their former relationship. This was, I mean, reckless behavior to say the least, which endangered both himself and Catherine, especially when he said out loud, apparently, that when the king were dead, I am sure I might marry her, referring to Catherine. Speaking of the king's death in any capacity was treason, as defined in the 1534 Treasons Act, so um, not a very smart move on Francis's part there. So with all of this, it is possible that Thomas Culpepper had learned of Catherine's sexual history before her marriage and may have pressured her to give him favors and attention in reward for um, keeping his silence. After all, this was the Tudor court, so really anything is possible in terms of power grabs and sexual intrigues, I'm sad to say. <laughs> the investigation into Catherine's alleged misconduct uh, took place in the beginning of November 1541. And when Culpepper confessed to his affair with the Queen, this was the evidence needed to charge Catherine definitively with, quote, leading an abominable, base, carnal, voluptuous, and vicious life like a common harlot with diverse persons. Two of the men who were implicated in these charges, Francis Derham and Thomas Culpepper, were executed, and it's likely that Catherine was greeted by the sight of their rotting heads on Tower Bridge when she was escorted there on February 12, 1542. The next day, she was taken to Tower Green, where she was executed. Her body was laid to rest near her cousin Anne Boleyn in the chapel of St. Peter Ad Vincula at the Tower, where it still lies today. You can go and see their graves. What you will not be able to see, however, is an authenticated contemporary likeness of Catherine. So that is a portrait that we know for sure is of her and was made during her lifetime. There is a portrait miniature that the Royal Collection Trust owns, um, which you can see over on the Instagram. It's, it's quite beautiful. It's only about 6.3 centimeters in diameter. That's about two and a half inches. And it is mount mounted on a playing card. It's actually the Four of Diamonds, as a fun fact. The woman in this portrait miniature, whoever she is, poses in that same demure kind of pose that Jane Seymour was depicted in, although her eyes are directed out of the image towards the viewer. She does wear quite sumptuous and lavish clothing, the same kind of embroidered cloth of silver and gold sleeves. She wears fur over her arms and then these lavish jewels as well. Probably the most compelling argument in favor of the sitter in this portrait being Catherine Hower is the large ruby, emerald, and pearl jewel which she wears kind of in the center of her chest. I would urge you to pull up the Instagram post here to look at what I'm talking about because that jewel is the same one that is shown in Holbein's portrait of Henry VIII's third queen, Jane Seymour. It's kind of shaped like, it's like a gold pendant shaped almost like a snowman or like a pear. Um, on top is 
kind of this oval shaped ruby and on the bottom is a rectangular emerald. So it's pretty compelling to look at both of these portraits side by side um, or top and bottom as I have them on the Instagram and say, yes, that is the same piece of jewelry. Henry was known to recycle jewels from one queen to another. After all, you know, they were finite. If you gave jewelry to one queen, if it was the property of the Queen of England, rightfully, you might just give it to your next queen. I don't know. Just attempting to put myself in Henry's shoes once again, I might have felt a new sense of hope if I had, you know, lost a queen like Jane Seymour and then been stuck in this brief but disappointing union with Anne of Cleves, maybe I would have wanted to celebrate and give her a token of my affection worthy of, of that, that sense of hope for the future. So it's very possible that this jewel was given to Catherine Howard by Henry VIII on her marriage in 1540. And if this portrait does show us Catherine Howard, how eerie would it be that they both received this jewel as a present from Henry and they're the ones that are left to haunt his palace. Ugh, that's creepy to think about, actually. However, Jane Seymour did also make gifts of her jewelry to her ladies-in-waiting. Waiting? I don't know why I said it like that. Um, one of whom, Mary Lady Monteagle, has also been suggested as a possible subject for this portrait miniature. Lady Monteagle's features, as shown in a Holbein drawing in the Royal Library, bear some resemblance to the one that is here and is possibly Catherine, so we may never know for sure. If this portrait does represent Catherine Howard, it would probably date from a very, very short period um, between when she married Henry and became queen, probably around 1540 when there was a lot of hope for the future. But isn't it, isn't it fascinating to not know for sure? This is a queen where, yeah, we don't know what she looked like. We don't know if she actually committed the acts that she was accused of. It's, oh my gosh, you couldn't, well, like I said before, you couldn't write this. What you could write about Catherine Howard, it would seem, are ghost stories. As early as the 1560s, stories began which claimed that Catherine's ghost could be seen running through the haunted gallery. Uh, this was probably named that <laughs> in honor of her at Hampton Court Palace screaming for mercy from her husband. A short history of Hampton Court, written in 1897 by Ernest Law, gives us a Victorian account of the alleged specter. On one occasion, a female form dressed in white was seen floating down the haunted gallery, quote, towards the door of the royal pew, and just as she reaches it has been observed to hurry back with disordered garments and a ghastly look of despair, uttering at the same time the most unearthly shrieks till she passes through the door at the end of the gallery. And writing in the same year, Mrs. Russell Davies' seance with the ghost of Catherine Howard, seance in air quotes, of course, gives us this passage. Quote, in less than two years after the king's marriage, my head fell on the block, but not a victim to Henry, but a victim to the war between the Pope and the Protestants. You can learn for yourself that my death warrant was never seen nor signed by the king. Against him, I have no thought. Long ago, I forgave my enemies, for I have learned that from all time sacrifices must be made, and only through such murderous scenes as my death can peace be brought upon earth. But so long as a single Howard remains a Roman Catholic, my spirit on All Souls Day will be returned to the scene of its earthly sufferings until by fire Hampton Court Palace shall become a ruin. After that, I shall appear in the homes of my people to foreshadow death and to warn them against the machinations of priests. Adieu. <laughs> so here again, I think we have the Victorians maybe putting a little bit of a moralistic spin on things. 
ascribing Catherine's death to the religious turmoil that was happening at the time rather than any possibility of licentious behavior on her part, once again, I think allows us to sympathize with her a little bit more and maybe redeems her character. I don't know. It's fascinating. I would love to go back in time and talk to just a single Victorian about all this. So there we have the possible reasoning that Catherine is haunting us because she is a religious spirit and her death was um, a martyrdom, essentially, and she's maybe not resting soundly as a result of that. Regardless of her motivations for coming back, according to palace officials, even today, her specter is still sometimes to be found in the haunted gallery. During two separate evening tours on one night in 1999, two female visitors, not in the same group, fainted on the same spot in the haunted gallery just one hour apart. Both women reported feeling frightened and uncomfortable, and one so much so that she refused to rejoin the tour. Even today, visitors to Hampton Court report strange feelings in the gallery, including a drop in temperature, hair being pulled, and in one case that was mentioned on a blog, a man feeling ghostly hands around his neck. A man who works as a first aid worker at the palace said, Whenever I hear over the radio that a visitor has fainted, I always head straight to the haunted gallery, even before I'm told the location of the incident. More often than not, that's where it happens. So, Catherine, when she does appear uh, physically to viewers, has been said to be draped all in white, perhaps as a symbol of her innocence in the matters that she was accused of. Who knows? But there's also said to be a grey lady that haunts Hampton Court Palace. The story of this ghost is linked with that of a woman named Sybil Penn. Sybil came from a family in Buckinghamshire, and she made a decent marriage to a man named David Penn, with whom she had three sons and two daughters. She served in the households of four Tudor monarchs, first to Henry VIII, and then she was appointed either as a dry nurse or a wet nurse, I, I saw both, to his son, Edward VI. Edward, upon becoming king at the age of nine, gave Sybil the manor of Beaumont and the rectory of Little Missenden in Buckinghamshire in which she could raise her family. When he died at age 15, Sybil served in the households of his sisters, Mary I and Elizabeth I. I wonder, that's got to be some kind of record. I can't imagine there were too many people who survived all of those reigns. I don't know, maybe. Sybil was probably closest out of all four of the monarchs that she served to Elizabeth. She served as her lady of the bedchamber. Sybil did have a house near Hampton Court Palace, but she would more typically occupy palace apartments on the west front of the palace, which overlooked the drawbridge. These were apparently some of the best apartments available, and they would allow her to remain close to Elizabeth at all times. Her job as Lady of the Bedchamber would have meant that she was very intimate with the Queen and probably probably talked to her a lot, probably got a lot of, you know, intimate moments with her. Sybil nursed Elizabeth I devotedly when she caught smallpox in 1562. The Queen recovered, but Sybil caught the pox after her and died soon after on November the 6th, 1562. Okay, wait, that date is kind of interesting. Okay, so I'm recording this on November 7th. Um, November 6th, 7th, and 8th, those are the days that Catherine Howard was being um, questioned in the, you know, adultery, treason investigations. And now Sybil Penn died on November 6th as well. This is fascinating. 
and Jane Seymour died in the middle of October. I'm just, I'm not saying, guys, I'm just saying these things have a habit of lining up. Once again, if you wanted to write this, you couldn't. You simply couldn't. You would be told it was too, too on the nose. This is, this is why we have ghost stories, because we love to put meaning on things that are actually meaningless. Okay, uh, where was I? Um, so as a loyal family servant after her death, Sybil was buried at the nearby Hampton Church rather than, you know, back home where her family lived. A marble funerary monument of her was erected, and I have a photo of this over on the Instagram. It's, it's quite austere, I will say. It includes a recumbent life-size effigy of Sybil under a canopy supported by marble pillars. A rhyming epitaph extolled her virtues, including the lines, Two queens that scepter bear gave credit to this dame. Before each joy, yea, and her life, her prince's health preferred. Prince here would refer to her monarch, Elizabeth. Sybil's effigy is at this church to this day, although her husband, David, died on the 3rd of February in 1565, just a little over two years after his wife. His will directed that her body was to be moved and buried in the Penn chancel, quote, among mine ancestors. So the legal paperwork essentially was in place for Sybil's body to be removed after her husband died and then buried beside him. We don't, as far as I know, actually know if that ever happened. But legend says that Sybil's tomb at Hampton Church was disturbed by building work when the church was renovated in 1829. This apparently came after a storm damaged the building. I've also seen versions of this legend which say that her grave specifically was struck by lightning in this storm. So perhaps it's a combination of things. The storm damaged the church and or her grave, and then the building work provided another disruption. Regardless of the reasoning there, Sybil's monument was moved to a spot near the staircase leading to the organ loft in the church. And according to some contemporary reports, the tomb was irreverently disturbed and her remains were scattered. An alternative account of when her tomb was moved in 1829 says that only a little yellow hair and a few hairpins were actually found in the grave, suggesting that her body had actually been previously removed. Maybe it had been moved back to Penn to lie beside her husband. Maybe it actually had been disturbed. I don't know if we'll ever know for sure. But regardless, it seems like whoever was assigned to move and repair Sybil's grave didn't find exactly what they expected. Reports of hauntings associated with Sybil began just a few years after this in the 1830s. Stories spread of a gray lady stalking the hallways near the state apartments and the clock court at the palace. Most of these stories came from a specific family, a family who lived in one of those grace and favor apartments, who occupied Sybil's former home. They complained of hearing disembodied voices and a whirring noise, like that of a spinning wheel, coming from behind one of their brick walls. They would wake to find the room bathed in an eerie light, the story goes, and one night a member of the family woke to find cold hands cradling his face perhaps trying to nurse him out of some mystery illness. Legend has it that palace workmen discovered a sealed off chamber in this family's apartment upon investigating. When the wall was removed, they saw an old, well-used Tudor spinning wheel, with its wheel having slowly come to a halt after the removal of an unseen hand. 
This apparently resolved nothing, and the apartment has never really recovered from these alleged hauntings. A tall and gaunt, grey-robed figure will often be seen walking across the west front of the palace. Visitors and employees of the palace have reported seeing this grey lady around and hearing her spinning wheel even today. This next anecdote gives me the heebie-jeebies. Oh, also, I do have a photo of the outside of the palace apartment on the Instagram. It's right under the photo of the silver stick staircase. Um, So you can see where this anecdote is about to take place. It's it's pretty spooky. So this story is from a blog, um, the blog of Kate Shrewsday. The post is called The Woman in Grey, A Hampton Court Ghost Story. And she writes, these days that apartment is a set of offices. The earliest arrival one morning, not long ago, put down two shopping bags to enter the security number on the keypad, which goes for security these days. And staring at her through the glass was a woman's face. The lady was puzzled. Who could be in the offices at this time? She opened the door and there stood a tall woman, dressed head to foot in grey, looking every bit flesh and blood. And for a short while, the women just stared at each other. It was when the woman inside made to move that the new arrival realized that there was something very wrong. She later described the woman gliding, as if on casters, past her, out of the door and across the entrance to the palace, disappearing after a short while. Who was she? The woman who worked in the office was in no doubt. For she had seen the marble effigy in the church up the river. Ugh, my gosh, I just, I do love a ghost story. Lucy Worsley historian, she uh, is chief curator at Historic Royal Palaces, who manages Hampton Court, wrote uh, in a piece that was published in the Daily Mail, but since she wrote it, I I feel okay (laughs) using some excerpts from it here. Um, She wrote that the man who organizes palace events had once contacted a psychologist and a paranormal expert to arrange a ghost hunting session for palace visitors. Soon afterwards, a mysterious fax in wobbly writing appeared on Chris's machine. It said, you're messing with forces you don't understand. Don't disturb the red room. Now receiving, (laughs) Lucy writes, now receiving a strange letter or fax is not unusual if you have an address like Hampton Court Palace, but at that moment, no one in the world besides the men who were organizing this event knew that they planned to hold a ghost hunting paranormal session. The palace apartment in which they were planning to hold this session was indeed hung with red fabric. The man said, I'm not a weird spiritual person, but it was as odd as anything. Now, it's totally okay with me if you would like to, you know, suspend your disbelief and just choose to disregard all of the rational explanations I've given for these ghost stories. I I do think there's a lot we don't know about this uh, world in which we live, and it's, hey, anything's possible. However, we largely can tell a lot about a ghost story in general from the way that the spirit or the specter is described. Before 1700, for example, most sightings were of male ghosts. Bet you didn't know that one. After the 18th century Enlightenment, though, a new interest in spiritualism emerged. According to Lucy Worsley, quote, the services of a professional medium, someone who is paid to communicate with the dead, became more popular with the bereaved. And with the rise of these often female mediums came what their clients wanted, a rise in sightings of female ghosts and spirits. Ghosts are also often described as draped in white or appearing in a white sheet. But even this is more of an indication of when the ghost's story originated than anything else. 
These accounts of ghosts draped in white tend to indicate a ghost from pre-Victorian times, as they would be wearing the shroud in which any 16th to 18th century person would have been buried. A shroud was literally a sheet, it was sometimes called a winding sheet, which would be tied above the head and below the feet. And Lucy writes, your standard Tudor ghost would undo that bottom knot so that he could walk along. However, a ghost who was spotted in or since Victorian times, as well as being more likely to be female, would appear in the garb that Victorian brains thought most strongly associated with death, the black or gray of mourning. This might explain those persistent sightings of a gray lady. Um, these originated, if you remember, in the 1830s, so very early in the Victorian period. And it was Queen Victoria herself who opened Hampton Course Palace to visitors in 1838, turning it into a destination for tourists from all over the world. This, combined with the general Victorian interest in the spirit world, was a recipe for eerie marketing copy about the palace, and I think visitors kind of took it from there. Historic Royal Palaces acknowledges, We all love a good ghost story, but nobody knew better than the Victorians that terror sells tickets. In the early 20th century, the darker episodes of palace history were retold for enjoyable chills, and ghostly legends grew until visitors expected an ectoplasmic encounter around every corner. The best-selling postcards at Hampton Court in the early 1900s were of specters in historic spaces. These were, I think it's fair to say, fake. They were probably double-exposed photographs offered as spine-tingling proof that the otherworldly was walking among the visitors at Hampton Court. I do have some photos of these over on the Instagram. The cover image for the post to go along with this episode is one of them that I think shows Sybil Penn. Probably just used an image based on her effigy to make that one. And then there are two that show allegedly Catherine Howard's ghost kind of screaming in terror in various parts of the palace. Um, it looks like they recycled the image of Catherine to make those two different postcards. And in one of them, she is being trailed by an executioner. So it's very scary stuff. Now, even if those ghosts do only exist in history and in our imagination, there are still ghosts associated with Henry VIII. Let me explain. I posted this image in a separate uh, Instagram post, so if you're looking on the Instagram, just go one back from the post to go along with the episode today. But I think there are also ghosts to be found in the art associated with Henry VIII himself. So I'm thinking specifically of a painting by the name of the family of Henry VIII, probably painted around 1545. We don't know the painter again for this one, sadly. This is described by the Royal Collection Trust as an important dynastic portrait of Henry VIII and his family, showing the king seated in the center beneath a canopy of state, flanked by his wife on his left and Prince Edward, later Edward VI, on his right. On the left side of the panel is Princess Mary, later Mary I, the king's daughter by his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, of course. And on the right of the panel is Princess Elizabeth, later Elizabeth I, his daughter by his second wife, Anne Boleyn. This is a very wide painting. It's, I think, a little over a meter in length. So Mary and Elizabeth are literally like the farthest they could be from their father in this painting. He has separated them by using some columns. He separated them out from like the nuclear family that he was aspiring to. Beyond them, we get some views out these like arches that are set into the wall in the painting. 
These show us the Great Garden at Whitehall Palace, which was, I think, Henry VIII's official residence. The heraldic king's beasts carved in wood with gilt horns and set on columns are prominently displayed amidst the flower beds here, which are demarked by wooden fencing and painted in the Tudor colors of white and green. Through the archway on the left can be seen part of Whitehall Palace and the Westminster Clock House, balanced by a view through the archway on the right of the north transept of Westminster Abbey and a single turret of Henry VIII's great close tennis court. The two figures in the archways, so these are like outside of the main scene, they are members of the royal household. That on the left is likely Jane, Princess Mary's resident fool, and the one on the right is mostly accepted as the king's jester, William Summers. All taken together, this panel serves as a dynastic propaganda device for Henry. He is sitting in the center of the panel with his dynasty secured around him. He has his heir, his male heir, and then the two backup daughters waiting in the wings. Now, at the time that this portrait was painted, based on the age that Edward appears in it, probably about eight years old, Henry would have been on his sixth and final wife, Catherine Parr. Catherine Parr was Queen of England and Ireland from her marriage to Henry in July 1543 until his death in January 1547. You can hear a bit more about her in the um, Elizabeth I episode once again. However, it is not Catherine Parr who is painted beside Henry here in this little idealized true family unit in the middle. Instead, the figure who stands beside the king is that of Jane Seymour, who would have been dead for at least several years, if not almost a decade, by the time this painting was completed. She is dressed in almost the exact costume depicted in the copy of Holbein's original portrait, jeweled pendant and all. In her hands, she holds either a pomander or a reliquary of gold set with a very large emerald, which is attached to the end of her girdle or her belt. This portrait is on display, I think fittingly, in the Haunted Gallery at Hampton Court Palace. You can usually go and see it there. And Henry substituting this ghostly figure of his favorite wife in for that of his actual wife at the time is a choice that is once again pretty chilling to actually consider fully. It speaks to the way that Henry viewed his wives eventually as replaceable and interchangeable. And for Jane's memory, this was a way of remembering her, keeping her spirit and uh, impact on the Tudor dynasty alive. He is placing her in the center of the composition alongside his legitimate heir, so that you kind of get this sense that she is the one who should rightfully be there beside him, even though that wasn't his reality. Keeping her memory alive in this way worked out well for Jane, but for others of Henry's wives, like the doomed Catherine Howard, they discovered too late that they could easily be supplanted and swapped out for a more congenial royal consort. So this keeping their memory alive through stories today is a little bit more melancholy to consider. Although each of Henry's wives' stories have been passed down through the generations as haunting and sometimes cautionary tales, it is Catherine Howard with her spirit still rumored to wander the very hall where this portrait is now displayed, and Jane with her rather blank slate of a personality left in the wake of her doing her duty and promptly dying that haunt us the most. And I think that's really, really poignant. Maybe the true ghosts of Henry VIII's favorite residence are our own incomplete pictures of the brief and transient lives that once walked its hallways. Well, 
that is going to be all for me today. Uh, this is an episode that I wanted to do probably since the very beginning of me knowing I was going to be doing a podcast. So I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It really does help me get in front of new listeners. Um, if you want to leave a review, please do that over on Apple Podcasts. Even if that's not where you're listening, you can hop over and then hop back to your preferred platform. If you are interested in supporting the show further, you could do that as a patron at patreon.com slash mata underscore of underscore fact. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Art of History Podcast, on TikTok at Art of History Pod, or on Twitter at Art Historic Pod. And of course, I continue to make my own silly little royal videos over on TikTok at Mata of Fact. That's Mata, M-A-T-T-A underscore of underscore fact. Of course, if you have any questions or comments or would like to let me know a painting that you would like me to talk about or a sculpture or, I don't know, a performance piece, literally anything goes, I would love to hear from you. You can leave a comment or send me a DM on the Instagram or shoot me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in the next one. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.